Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with Derek Davison, and we are excited to welcome to the pod, for the first time, my old friend. I knew him when he was but a young lad, Fritz Bartel. Fritz is presently an assistant professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M, and he is the author of the new book, The Triumph of Broken Promises, The End of the Cold War and the Rise of Neoliberalism, published by Harvard. Fritz, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to this. So why don't we just dive right in? So I like beginning conversations with historians about their books, about about the literature a little bit, about what they thought the literature wasn't addressing that inspired them uh, to do the book. So it, it's 20, what, 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 when was I there? 2013. It's in Ithaca, New York. You're having a college yeah. town pizza bagel. You're going to the chapter house to have a cold one after class. What brings Fritz to uh, write this particular book at this particular time? Well, as uh, as everyone thinks when they're having a beer at the chapter house, they think about Eastern European sovereign debt. And uh, that's what I was thinking about. I uh, was, as many graduate students do, I was kind of actually desperately in search of a, a dissertation topic. The one I came in with, I ultimately didn't work out, didn't think it was going to be a full dissertation. And I was looking around, you know, trying to find something that would capture my interest and that people would the field would also find interesting and i ended up reading stephen kotkin's uh article the kiss of debt in this volume uh the uh, the shock of the global basically about how the eastern Bloc was 90 billion dollars in debt to the capitalist world when the when the berlin wall came down um i to that point didn't know i, I didn't know that uh it didn't make any sense to me why would communists borrow from capitalists why would capitalists lend to communists and then what was the effect of that debt on the events of the that we call the end of the Cold War? And uh, I went in search of an answer in the literature that existed. Kotkin went on to write a, another short book that kind of addressed some of this stuff. But basically, I, I didn't find one. And um, as a graduate student, you think that's a that's a pretty good combo. If you if you find something that seems interesting, seems important and uh, and the literature hasn't addressed yet. So um, from there, it, it kind of. It grew and grew and grew as a project, which I, I felt fortunate um, to kind of have stumbled on a project like that, that that was big enough to to kind of keep involving other pieces uh, of the story. And uh, and it resulted in this book, what, eight years later or something like that, some crazy amount of time. So that's uh, that's uh, to your question of what was the literature not talking about? I mean, to this day. The, the kind of common perception persists that the Eastern Bloc and the Western world or global capitalism were somehow kind of cordoned off areas. Um, you can still see that, like when we think about, when people talk about the difference between the U.S.-China rivalry and what the first Cold War, like why they might be different, now there's interdependence and there supposedly wasn't interdependence on any kind of significant scale in the original Cold War. I don't think the scholarly literature takes that seriously, but we didn't have a story of how these two sides got economically intertwined 
and what sources of leverage that provided Western actors. Uh, we have a, a general... Sorry, Fritz, let me just interrupt for a second because I have a question because I was actually just recently digging in the U.S.-Soviet trade relationship for whatever reason. So my understanding is that the U.S.-Soviet trade relationship was actually quite, quite low. Like the United States and Soviet Union, qua those two great powers, didn't really interact economically that much with each other. There are some ebbs and flows, but for the most part, they didn't. Is that incorrect? No, that's true. Um, but I think we, we, we have to look at it. We're as, talking in blocks um, now, right? And that, blocks, that might yeah, also be another difference between the Soviet Cold War and the so-called New Cold War is that we're not really talking about a China block versus uh, a, a Western block. So could you just maybe right. disaggregate that? Because it is a fact that the U.S. and Soviet Union actually didn't trade very much with each other, almost nothing. For, for great right. swaths of the Cold War. So how does that relate to this larger block story that you're telling? So there's a great deal of, uh, well, a great deal. There's a, there's a significant amount of trade between kind of Western Europe and, and Eastern Europe. There's obviously the energy trade that begins to develop between, at the time, West Germany and the Soviet Union. Um, there's also just a, 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 the Eastern Bloc has to, you know, borrow the money from capitalist uh, banks that are based in London or Frankfurt or New York, um, not necessarily to buy products directly from Western countries, though they did a good bit of that too, but to, to buy products, you know, anything that they wanted to buy for hard currency. So, so that doesn't necessarily show up in a trade relationship uh kind of a bilateral trade relationship it's it's just how how do you buy oil from the middle east uh, these are these are the kinds of things that you need hard currency for and for that you have to turn uh, just as you do now you turn to the financial centers of uh, global capitalism so so, so that, in a sense that's kind of just i i just yeah um would like to understand it myself Western and Eastern Europe essentially served as proxy spaces for the U.S. and Soviet Union to engage economically with one another, is effectively what you're saying. Yeah, and I guess I would then quickly also add, and the book I hope brings this through, that very little of this is coordinated or planned. Um, I don't see a a lot of kind of strategic, there's, obviously there's there's kind of the Ostpolitik strategy, like a, a West German strategy to engage the Eastern Bloc economically to produce uh, political results, but most of it is is when you look at it from in in retrospect, you know, kind of a haphazard, slowly adjusting relationship over the course of the seventies that then turns into a debtor creditor relationship in the nineteen eighties, and right up to the very end, there's very few actors who think you know no one's trying to like use debt to end the end the Cold War because they don't think the Soviet Union. We'll let this happen. Um, but that's maybe jumping ahead uh, a little bit too far. But um, No, no, that's good. Let, let's wait for that. Yeah. And then, sorry. So yeah. I think maybe just uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of it, maybe you could talk a little bit about what are the prevailing explanations for the end of the Cold War. This is a relatively new period of study for a historian, um, though it has mm-hmm. been extensively covered by uh, political scientists. So could you maybe actually take us through that? Because that's a really interesting debate. Because I think that the common story that I hear in like the world is that Reagan spending forced the Soviet Union to spend so much, and then they collapsed. And Reagan <laughs> is a major cause of the Cold War's end. 
that is not correct. I don't think historians think that's correct. But could you take us through the major explanations for why the Cold War ended basically without Wait, I'm a not war? Gonna do, I'm not going to put up with any Reagan slander here, okay? I mean, he parachuted into the Kremlin, single-handedly defeated communism. That's the story. That's, that's, the, that's, that's what happened. So that's, first of all, incorrect. But uh, to jump to the end of the book, I also do make the argument that the Reagan military buildup actually was... Uh, uh, decisive, um, primarily as an expression, a military expression of underlying dynamics in kind of global capitalism. Uh, so it, it, there's no direct kind of causal line of bank, like bankrupting the Soviet Union or something. Um, but that, exi- that, that explanation, certainly the, the so-called Reagan victory school, um, was one of the first to emerge. And obviously for, uh, clear political reasons has a lot of, uh, you know, political cachet and historians, I think, then have built most of their explanations either explicitly or implicitly trying to um, fight against that, uh, rightly so, because because if, if if you let history say, you know, the United States can go around outspending people and kind of uh, militarily putting them into submission, then then that's a pretty dangerous uh, precedent to set. So instead, historians rightly have focused on the other side. I mean, Gorbachev is this unique historical figure that is difficult to get around um, as a a primary cause of the end of the Cold War, that some would go so far as to say, you know, if he doesn't come to power in 1985, the Cold Cold War could still be going on, or or at least the Soviet Union would still exist. Uh, so there's, in that sense, nothing structural about why the Cold War ended. That's one of the things I'm arguing against, I guess. I'm trying to point out the structural case for why things unfolded the way they did without kind of partaking in any kind of Western triumphalism. I mean, the, the book is called The Triumph of Broken Promises because it is a triumph of some kind, but it's one that that is about... Uh, breaking promises and and that what kind of triumph is that really so anyway gorbachev is is a significant explanation kind of his his exceptional view of the world and how he gave up on trying to kind of militarily keep the block together uh is a significant cause of one that that people talk about obviously the the so-called people power uh in the streets in in eastern europe east central europe in 1989 and then the kind of these contingent events that no one foresaw, like the opening of the Berlin Wall. At least that's that's the story. My book puts forward a, a different story of how people actually did uh, kind of see this coming. Not not in its exact form, but they they certainly thought it was going to happen sometime soon. So I think you you get from historians. Um, I hope it's not unfair to say kind of a well, a strong sense that it's a lot of it's contingent and it didn't have to happen and it certainly didn't have to happen peacefully. And obviously there are reasons to make that that we should believe in contingency. We should believe that that it, the past didn't have to happen the way it did. But I also find that kind of deeply unsettling in the sense that if the only great power conflict we've had in the nuclear era ended peacefully just kind of for a series of historical accidents then we we might we might be uh in danger going forward so you know it wasn't my primary motivation but trying to find reasons why the structures of international politics as they were operating in the 1970s and 80s might have tended towards a kind of 
peaceful resolution of the end of the Cold War seemed like something worth trying to explore. And, and hopefully that's what my book provides, a kind of a, a, a reason why, in terms of international relations, uh, why great power competition might end peacefully uh, when we don't, we don't anticipate that that would, would actually would usually be true. Can I follow up on the, the Reagan thing? I, I, I mean, is it fair to say, given uh, what you, you lay out in the book, that, that you, know, you can sort of divide the Cold War into this first phase of making promises and then the shocks of the 1970s and then the rest of it becomes a competition to see who can break promises the most efficiently, essentially. Uh, I mean, to the extent that Reagan matters in this story, could, could we say that he's the world champion of breaking promises, basically. I mean, that he's unmatched in his uh, ability to sort of tear down the the promises of the New Deal state and uh, basically get people to go along with it. Well, I would actually give the crown to Paul Volcker much more. I, I think um, monetary policy turns out, uh, and maybe this we should have always known this, but it become just became more abundantly clear to me. The amount of social change, let's say, you could say social damage you can do just by raising interest rates is immense. Uh, and you can do far more of that in a far kind of easier way than actually trying to de- uh, dismantle a welfare state or something in a, in a political way. And so um, many of Reagan's most ardent uh, kind of uh, supply side, uh, small small government people walk away from the from his administration, like pretty disappointed actually in what they were unable to achieve. Uh, and they, they think of Reagan as kind of this big spending, big tax cut president who didn't really live up to the promises of the Reagan revolution. Now, I think he still did do a great deal of upward redistribution and things like that, uh, and, and broke promises to a significant degree. But uh, I, I think Paul Volcker's influence was was economically and socially much much stronger, actually. And the combination of the two of them is is what really kind of sets it, takes it to a whole nother level, um, for reasons that we we may get into by the time we get to chapter five or whatever it is. We we will get into. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Fritz, before we go there, I'd like to talk a little bit about IR theory, um, because okay. this used to be a thing in the 80s and the 90s where diplomatic historians would be trained in IR theory. And I think that's kind of gone a little bit out of fashion, uh, is my sense. I did a field in yeah. IR theory. I think you were, Katzenstein was on your committee, if, if I'm correct. So you did a field right. in IR theory. So how do you see IR theory shaping your analysis? Because on, on one sense, you're, you're doing a really very Marxist analysis. Don't tell your <laughs> colleagues at the Bush School. But you're essentially yeah. saying that the structure of the political economy is the main driver of everything that happened and that agents operate within that system, but ultimately th- it, it's the base that is driving things. Um, so I was wondering if you could comment a bit on on whether you think your Marxist analysis is actually Marxist or not uh, and how you <laughs> see IR theory shaping the entire book, because we've done a lot of interviews with a lot of historians, and this is, I would say, by far the book that's most recent that that is decisively shaped by an IR theory perspective, which I appreciate personally. I find it I find it quite interesting. And you think the Marxist one is the one that comes through most? I mean, I just or you think mean like, in relation to realism or something. Or? I, I mean, I think that realists would not center political economy. 
in in quite right. the same way that that you center political economy. And I think you you are centering, at least I read it this way. To correct me if I'm wrong, you're centering basically global capitalism. And global yeah. capitalism does things, and then people respond to global capitalism effectively. So I, I took the major agent of the book to be the political economy. Um, tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. No, no, no. I th- you're absolutely right. And I guess the Cold War or the realist or liberal IR theory stuff happens kind of one step removed from where my analysis starts, right? And IR theorists, the, all these schools had a lot of difficulty explaining the end of the Cold War because it it didn't seem to, it wasn't supposed to happen, right? The one side just wasn't supposed to give up basically peacefully. So, and I, I frame it in this question, I said in the introduction, one of the questions that any historian at the end of the Cold War has to answer is, why did the holders of imperial and, and authoritarian power willingly and peacefully give it up? And to me, that only starts to make sense and in fact, in fact, it makes a great deal of sense once you look at the political economy angle, um, kind of how they're responding to global capitalism, how they're trying to legitimize or avoid the pressures that the capitalist economy are putting on them. From an IR theory standpoint, particularly a realist standpoint, I guess I'm trying to save, in a way, like a realist explanation of the end of the Cold War, where power matters and power is is what's decisive in international affairs, by bringing these political economy dynamics back into into their story. Um, but the way that I read it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is realists do not focus on the power of political economy. They they I've read so much. I mean, maybe Katzenstein, but he is as well, Mario a, Del Perro would say, an eccentric realist at best. If if, yeah. if, if one were to put him in that category, yeah. right? So like that. I mean, so I I actually agree, and I think like this is the reason that realism is the base from which basically all post war IR theory emerges is because the category is power. But realists yeah. are talking about military power. They are not talking about the power of global capitalism. I think partially because they really couldn't adopt any lens that looked slightly Marxist. I, I mean, I don't know, Fritz, when was the last time you read Man, the State, of, and War? But there's that there's that chapter which is like, this is why Marxism isn't good, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think that that is a, a major weakness in the analysis. So I, I actually think what you're doing is basically using an old style, because it's very powerful, Marxist analysis in, in realist idiom effectively, where you're like, power matters, but the real power that matters is the power of capital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think that's exactly it. And, um, and once you look at it in those terms, um, uh, I think, I think basically realists think about the world. So like, I put forward a, a, an explanation of, of Gorbachev that is not, he's not an idealist, like, he's not driven by some sort of idealistic project he's driven by soviet self-interest you just have to define soviet self-interest national interest in the in the proper terms which uh at that point and i'm not projecting this onto them they were i mean they're telling me this from from the sources they thought of their the the terms in kind of political economic terms and so once you look at it in in that uh way even someone like gorbachev is really just responding to something you could call the soviet national interest as it's defined by political economy. This is all really interesting. And why don't we get a little bit, we're still not going to get to the book quite yet, but I want to get okay. to the Cold War itself. 
Because this used okay. to be a very hot topic of debate, and it is not really a hot topic of debate any longer. So I want to I want to proffer my theory for the origins of the Cold War, and I want you to t- comment on it. Okay. So I basically take 45 to 49 as a real plastic period. I know historians usually date it either to Kennan, you know, basically Kennan in its aftermath in, in early to mid-46, or the Truman Doctrine in March 47. Uh, but I really don't think the Cold War got institutionalized as the logic of international relations until the autumn of 1949, when the two things happened. The Soviets get, well, really, Americans learn that the Soviets achieved some form of nuclear capability. It's, it's worse mm-hmm. than they imagine, uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that the Soviets aren't as capable as they imagine. That's what I mean. Uh, but they're like, oh, no, they, they get really freaked out. And then, like, literally a, about a week later, uh, Mao wins in the Chinese Civil War. And now, you know, the famous, you know, X percentage of the world is now under communism. And that's when the logic of the Cold War gets institutionalized. Um, so that really is a security logic. But what gets the Cold War to become what it is, is, is NSC 68 in Korea, which basically makes the political economy of the Cold War what it was, which is that we had this sort of peacetime pseudo-demobilization. We're talking about universal military training, but what are we going to do? We don't really know. Oh, wait, there, there, there's a war in Korea. Now the Cold War is the logic of, of American governance. And so you have both levels. Mm-hmm. The international security environment becomes very fearful to elite-level policymakers, and then you have the Korean War, which restructures the domestic political economy in some form of military Keynesianism. So I was wondering if you agree with that story of the origins of the Cold War, or where would you place the start of the Cold War? Because I do think it actually is important to understand, because then you could see, like, different moments. Yeah, so I... uh... You know, you are a scholar of the early Cold War, and you, so you you have really defined thoughts on this. I mean, I I, I wrote an article, uh, actually, the thing that I thought was going to be my dissertation on the world government movement of the 1940s, which collapsed in this summer of 1950, precisely because the Korean War started and didn't lead to immediately to World War Three. So I think one of the key facets that you need for the Cold War to set in is the idea widely accepted among people that it just won't end, like that it is itself indeterminate in length. And that doesn't really set in. So it doesn't become kind of part of social reality until 1950, as you as as you say, I I don't see any reason to to disagree with that. I think it I think you're also you're absolutely right that it begins for a security logic for reasons of driven by security or insecurity. Um, and therefore, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the main things I wanted to correct about the end of the Cold War. We think because it started for reasons of security, it must have ended for a, for security logic. And that just didn't accord with what I was seeing. Yes, the Cold War is still going on in the 80s. It's still real. But the, the drivers of change and the drivers of the end of the Cold War really don't have that much to do with a security logic, I would say, or the, or the security logic is very much secondary. So, you know, there's huge debates in the end of the Cold War about obviously whether or not the Reagan military buildup had an effect or what was driving Gorbachev's moves towards disarmament and things like that. And those are important, but there's no reason to think that that's actually what the end of the Cold War was. The end of the Cold War was a collapse of an entire system of government, kind of civilization, meaning communism or state socialism. And if you don't have an explanation for why that collapses as a system of governance, then just explaining kind of the IR part or the security logic part of the end of the Cold War doesn't actually get you that far, I think, in terms of 
explaining the events as they as they actually unfolded. So so yeah, I think the end of the Cold War is driven by very different logics, if we want to use that term, than the than the start of the Cold War was. So let's talk now a little bit about those systems of governance and what they meant, because in order to break promises, you first need to make promises. Uh, so I think probably most people listening have a good understanding of, of the capitalist gambit, which is that this competition is going to lead to innovation and everyone's going to consume more. But what is the, the Soviet promise? Because I, I imagine that that changes over the course of the 20th century. And if, if possible, I'd love even if we could start in 1917. I mean, not to go into the details, but I, I think it's actually really important to understand the alternative that, that the Soviet Union was trying to provide and how that alternative shifted. So would it be possible for you to take us basically from 1917 to roughly World War II, and then we could talk about the promises um, that both sides were making in the immediate wake of World War II in order to better understand what exactly was being broken? Uh, so I don't actually think the politics of making promises, as I define it, really sets in in the Eastern Bloc and, and the Soviet Union until the post-Stalinist period. I think there's, I mean, obviously the, the, there's a huge modernization drive and there's a, there's a promise that if you kind of defer your own individual well-being or even your life, give, you know, give your life for the cause in the sake of modernizing the country and creating uh, socialism in one country, you or your descendants and the country itself will eventually reach a kind of higher stage of modernization. But I don't think the actual kind of delivering on the promise of, as I call it, modernity's good life really emerges until the Khrushchev period in the 1950s. And at that point, uh, you know, it becomes really one of providing upward mobility for lots of different people of lower social classes. It, it becomes providing job security. It becomes providing very stable uh, consumer prices that don't rise over time so that so that the kind of basic social contract is uh, affordable to the average Soviet citizen. Uh, it becomes shorter work hours. It becomes um, uh, vacation homes of, of a very modest sort. It becomes providing housing and in an urban environment for uh, lots and lots of people. So uh, and all of that is built into a logic for a projection where this is going to continue to get better over time. So, you know, Khrushchev famously promises that the Soviet Union itself will reach the stage of communism by 1980. And if... Did it happen? You know, <laughs> it did not. It did not happen. No, it, it did not. And, and many people thought he, I mean, he was crazy in the first place to have uh, even made, made that claim uh, because already at that time, people, many around him were... Uh, let's say, concerned about the overall trajectory of, of where things were headed. But this kind of claim started to be made in an environment where, and I think the key factor in, in how I think about it is after the Cold War becomes, if it becomes clear that it may not be resolved by military force, uh, there's not going to be some conflict between the two sides, then it has to be resolved by proving which side provides a, a kind of a better overall social contract to its citizens. Uh, it becomes a, a, a battle over ways of life rather than who's going to militarily prevail on the battlefield. 
So, Fritz, to me, and maybe I'm wrong here because I'm not an expert in 1950s era Soviet Union, but it, it does seem like uh, they're basically trying to do capitalism in the sense that they're trying to give people consumer goods. They're trying to give people mm-hmm. houses. They're trying to, you know, uh, make sure people work like they're they're being propagandized about people working in the West. And to me, that reads differently than the Soviet new man of the 1920s and an entirely mm-hmm. different project about what type of social citizen is going to create be created by that system. That's what I was trying to get at here. So, so maybe could, mm-hmm. could you drill down a little bit on when does that shift happen where by 1956, you know, 57, Khrushchev is saying the Soviet Union is going to allow you to live a better American life than the Americans from 1920s as we're creating an entirely new type of social being in the world. Yeah. And I think there, I mean, there are people far better qualified than me to really answer like when and how this shift, uh, happens. Um, I think, I think there's, uh, there was a general sense by the fifties that you couldn't, um, kind of perpetually defer the goods, so to speak, of the state socialist project kind of infinitely into the future. And you had to start delivering them in the present. And so that's what begins to unfold in the 1950s. And they start to have, you know, they have a decade of economic growth that makes them look like they are actually going to be able to do this, not just to themselves, but many in the West are observing this, you know, much like we have China over the last two decades or three decades and, and, and see this kind of perpetual economic growth continuing far into the future. I can't remember exactly when, I think it's the late 1960s, Paul Samuelson is still projecting that the Soviet economy will overtake the United, the U S economy by the end of the 20th century. And so if you have that kind of underlying economic growth, you sense among your citizens that, um, given the sacrifices of the great patriotic war, uh, given the many decades now of sacrificing in the name of some future state socialist and eventually communist paradise, you have to eventually start to deliver those goods. And you're doing so in an environment where uh, the West is no longer in the midst of a Great Depression, right? It's now starting to show itself to be able to provide for its own citizens coming out of World War II in a very consumerist and abundant way. And if you're going to catch up, if you're going to keep pace, and even if you're going to overtake the West, which was, of course, part of their uh, promise, you have to start to deliver deliver the goods, so both figuratively and and literally. And so I think that's what's going on in in the 1950s. And let's talk about what is the Western promise. I mean, we've been dancing around it. I think everyone knows, but could you just like delineate it? Is it basically washers and dryers in every home, a vacuum cleaner in every home? What what specifically is the American dream as instantiated during this early Cold War moment? This this era of making promises. Yeah, well, it's it is con, it is a consumerist dream. Uh, it is so it's washers and dryers. It's um, but I think it's also limiting inequality. So you have some, it's not just about providing abundance. It's also about maintaining kind of some sense of equality between your citizens. I think it's about tying that to production as well. So, so giving people stable employment that they can count on for the foreseeable future. So, so, you know, 
if we th- we think about the precariat these today, it was it was trying to deliver people from a precarious situation and, and give them a stronger sense of economic and social security, and and then allow them to go to the movies and have a washer and dryer and be subject to advertising and all the rest of it, right? But but at a foundational level, I think it's providing the working class, certainly certainly the middle class with a more stable, predictable, and secure, uh, and upwardly mobile uh, economic and social life and future. So much of this is also is painting pictures of a future that is going to arrive, not just for who's around now, but also for future generations uh, and how that's going to be better, right? So there's a, there's a I, I've reproduced this graph at the end of the book, which I was stunned to find actually in a governing document of someone defining the West as just a constantly upward sloping line of per capita GDP. There's lots of ways you can define the West, but I think, you know, particularly if we're thinking in political economy terms, the Western promise has been to just always increase that and then subject it to very widely varying degrees of inequality or equality and, and things like that. But, but Western promises in the post-war period anyway, were built on this uh, idea of increasing abundance, increasing economic security, and decreasing inequality to at least a, a certain degree. So this is definitely a presentist's question, but there's no consideration uh-oh. of... I know, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> there's no consideration of climate at this point in history, right? There, there's no... Recognition that just constantly consuming might have negative ecological effects. I I don't think so. Um, I I'm not. Uh, I'm not. You, you're not finding on, that on in that. your documents yeah, when people I mean, are constantly talking about upward growth. The idea <laughs> is that we could just we could just exploit the earth forever <laughs> and ever and ever. Amen. Uh, basically, I still think that. By the way, I, <laughs> yeah, I, actually, American we can do it. Skills, we're the official podcast of Blackwater. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. that. I didn't, no. Yeah. No. So just so you know, just uh, so be careful no, I mean, how you answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. As far as I'm aware, it's not um, a, a major concern. Obviously, it starts to become a concern in in the at least probably not defined in terms of carbon, but in terms of other ecological side effects, externalities in uh, you know the late '60s, early '70s. But in terms of building these these promises in the first place, uh, no, I don't think it's uh, it's part of the promise, and and that's why when I get to the end of the book, and I, in some ways I think it's an insufficient way to end it, but I, I write something at the end about how like the, the question for today is how would states sustainably maintain promises to all of their citizens, because not only do we need a new social contract, but it needs to be done in a way that is is sustainable and isn't going to just constantly exploit the earth, as you said. So uh, we can't really look backwards to this period for inspiration and how you might do that. At least you can't kind of take it wholesale because that was all built on exploiting uh, the earth to a a significant degree. So the 50s are the decade of making promises on both sides of that proverbial iron curtain. 
how do things proceed in the 60s? Is it just more of the same? Does Cuba, does the Cuban Missile Crisis really affect any of this? Or is it just like, these are still the promises, there's these various events, the U.S. is in Vietnam, the Soviet Union is more into supporting wars of national liberation, but basically the, these are, this is this is the, the driving force of, of the imagination on both sides in the 60s. Is that accurate? Yeah, it, it is for my story. The book is set up on a, a premise, right, which you could attack that like there is this dividing line between an era of making promises and, and one of breaking. And, and, it, and that dividing line, I think, starts to break down in the early 70s. And as much as you can ever establish a, a dividing line in, in history in any kind of clear cut sense, um, the 60s are very much still part of this, this era of making promises. Um, you know, in the, in the United States, we still have uh, obviously, the Great Society period taking shape in Western Europe, it, there's nothing yet to suggest that the development of the kind of post-war welfare state, as it's uh, as it's developed, and and very importantly, the promise of full employment, right, which is is completely unexpected for these European economies. But if you if you've come out of the depression, if you're starting World War II, you wouldn't think that you could have two decades of full employment verging on labor shortage by the time you get to the end of the 1960s. Uh, but that's exactly what happens. And so, yes, I think broadly speaking, we're still very much in the period of, of making promises uh, in the in the Eastern and Western blocs. That said, at the same time, by the end of the 60s, there's a, you could say, a revolt on both sides about um, the sufficiency of these social contracts as they've been offered to the populations, right? So in the West, there's lots of different uh, sources for revolt against society in the late 1960s. Not all of them are material, but in terms of materially driven, of course, there's all kinds of new left forces and things like that. But um, there is a significant uptick in labor union activism, trying to basically recover or, or get increases in real wages that actually eventually surpass increases in productivity and deliver ever more goods to the members of kind of, of organized labor in the east one of the major starting points for me is the revolts in poland in 1970 which come again in response to an attempt at price increases the first time kind of a series of price increases will unfold in poland then lead to unrest and so there's this broad kind of revolt also in the east against the kind of how sufficient are these promises how 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 happy are we with the social contracts as they've developed in the post-war period and and in, on both sides citizens are telling their governments there's more work left to do in a sense Fritz, uh, this is really good uh, scene setting, and we'll get into the book proper for your next 4,000 appearances. Uh, <laughs> but before we do that, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about generations and, and um, generational change. And this has become recently a hot topic, and I think it, it really does inform our politics today with different types of expectations that people have over time and what they expect from their government. So could you talk a little bit about that category and how you see it operating, or rather not operating, if that's the case, um, in your work before we get to your uh, the oil shock, which is really where your book begins? It's interesting. I hadn't really, I haven't examined it in close detail in terms of how these generations are operating. Obviously, uh, you know, the story in bo on both sides, I think, is that there's a there's a younger generation emerging in the 1960s, the post kind of post war generation that is. Um, 
either fed up with the Cold War, fed up with forgetting the terms that they would have used, right? But like the uh, bureaucratized capitalism of the Western Bloc. There's all kinds of people on the Eastern side that are really seeing that socialism isn't delivering a what it says. And so you have this, you have the Prague Spring, which is not necessarily a youth project, I don't think. But there's there are these generations that are coming of age in the 1960s and are uh, basically demanding uh, ever more, uh, and probably rightly, from their from their governments. Because one of the reasons I was a little bit uncomfortable, or or I hesitated for a moment to call this an era of making promises in the kind of the four, let's say 45 to to 1970 period, is that particularly in the early post-war years, much of the of the promise was deferred, right? You were supposed to, in the name of reconstructing your country or reconstructing your society or fighting the Cold War or whatever the case might be, you were supposed to defer some of your your own well-being, whether that was materially or professionally or just kind of nationally. Governments made the case that you had to, to defer some of that. And, and by the late 60s, I think people are saying this has gone on long, long enough and we need kind of greater accountability for it, and we need uh, a, a greater voice in it, uh, in, in how these things are determined and, and distributed, and they're not receiving it. And so you get you start to get a lot of political change that comes from that, you know, all the way to the rise of the, of the new right in the United States in the, the 1980s. And you get, you know, things like the labor union solidarity in, in Poland that start to develop on the backs of this uh, relatively young movement coming out of the out of the 1960s fritz bartell thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to having you back soon thanks guys looking forward to our 4,000 upcoming episodes <laughs> <laughs> that that's, that's a, not it could be more than that let's not yeah, let's not limit ourselves we're not we're not sticking to that yeah, yeah.